All right, man. Welcome to Pro Triple Seven Radio. This is episode 561. Jason Lingren is with me, and joining us for the first time is Bibu Dev Mizra. He's written a book called The Yuga Shift, and uh, Rose and I both stumbled on an article at the same time. And as everyone following knows, uh, I have a direct interest in particularly the Yuga cycles, as was laid down in the ancient Indian tradition. Say what you want about the cycles, but one thing that is plain on the face of it, it is not common knowledge. You can look in five different places and get five different answers. It seems to be a cycle that is held very close to the vest. Hence, the reason I asked Bibu to come on, uh, he has a cultural connection to India. And so I want to hear what he has to say about things. Anyhow, welcome, Jason. And good morning. All right. Anything going or shall we jump? Let's do this. All right. Welcome, Bibu. Hi, Crow. Hi, Jason. Nice to meet you guys. Hey, it's great to have you on. Before we get started here, can you tell folks where they can find your book, websites, uh, an email if you want, whatever you'd like to put out so people can find you and your work? Yeah, the book is called Yuga Shift, and it's on Amazon right now. So you can just go to Amazon and type Yuga Shift, and you should be getting my book. It's both in paperback as well as Kindle. I don't have an audible version as of now. And uh, I had initially written an article on the Yuga Cycle around uh, 10 years back in 2012. And it's there on my website. It's called Ancient Enquiries. But the website address is my full name. It's www bibudevmishra.com and if you go there you'll find a lot of other articles uh, that I have written as well on many different aspects pertaining to the ancient civilizations and ancient mysteries and uh, some of them uh, are also related to the yuga cycle uh, article that I wrote uh, around 10 years back all right perfect uh, as is always usual we will put the links in the top comment it looks like the best bet in town. Uh, well, the book, you know where to go for the book, but it's bibudevmizra.com. And uh, Bibu, I'm just going to jump in unless you'd like to mention anything before we get started. Well, let's get started. All right. I'm going to follow pretty closely to what you've provided us because I'm working from the premise. Well, let, let's just jump in. So what got you interested in the yuga cycles? Well, you know, I'm, I'm from India. And when you read the Indian legends and uh, stories, they're always linked up with the Yuga cycle. So, for instance, we have two big epics. One is called the Ramayana and the other is called the Mahabharata. The Ramayana is about a god king called Rama who lived around, uh, who lived in the Treta Yuga, which is the Silver Age. And uh, the Mahabharata is again about uh, five brothers and uh, the, another incarnation of a god called Krishna. And that's set in the Dwapara Yuga. The Dwapara is the Bronze Age in the, as per the Greek classification of the World Ages. So whenever we read these stories, we are intimately, uh, we, we become familiar with the concept of the Yuga cycle. And we know what are the conditions of life, how the people lived in those higher Yugas, and how uh, the devolution of human co consciousness, and how the increase in uh, violence and untruth and uh, lies and all the other things that we see around us today, how that gradually accelerated as we devolved down the Yuga cycle to the Kali Yuga, which is the Iron Age that we are living in right now. So it's it's a familiarity that uh, that kind of uh, it, it develops over time. Uh, if you're a Hindu and you're familiar with the ancient stories, it's a familiarity that almost every Indian would be having the Yuga cycle. What people may not be aware of is 
this is actually a very scientific cycle. It's backed up by a host of data, which I have shown in the book. And what and people have also forgotten are the, are the original uh, timeline of the Yugo cycle. So though they don't really know when the golden age existed or when the Kali Yuga is going to end. So there's a lot of confusion around the dates. Well, that, that's actually a big deal. Now, as a Westerner, could I think of the Mahabharata as a bit like the Bible for India? Do you think that's a safe correlation? Well, the Mahabharata is a big story and the Bible basically revolves around the life of Jesus. So a Mahabhar- a Bible would probably fit in more with the story of a Buddha who, who was born in the Kali Yuga around 600 BCE. So that that's more of a, that's a better correlation. Whereas Mahabharata is more like the uh, Iliad, where you or, or the Odyssey, uh, which uh, talks about this great Trojan War, which was fought towards the end of the uh, Bronze Age. So that that would be a better correlation with the Mahabharata. So if I showed up in India and I just randomly walked through a big city, asking people who grew up there, when is the Yuga cycle going to change? Would there be a common idea or are people there as confused about it as we are here? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of confusion. And what happened was that uh, sometime uh, around maybe uh, 1,000, 2,000 years back, the yuga cycle duration in India was inflated to a humongous number. What happened was originally the half cycle was 12,000 years duration. And that that got multiplied by 360 because uh, somebody assumed that one day is equal to uh, 360 days. One day is, uh, so they multiplied it by 360, and we ended up with a number that's around 4 million years for the entire Yuga cycle, which obviously doesn't make sense either in the context of uh, the known history of human civilization or with the numbers that we find in the other traditions, because the Yuga cycle or the cycle of the world ages was known to uh, nearly uh, all the Asian uh, cultures, and they called it by different names. The Greeks, uh, you know, we'll talk about it later. But but yes, uh, if you go to an Indian, if you ask him uh, when is the Kali Yuga coming to an end, he'll probably tell you that we are at the beginning stages of the Kali Yuga and it still has another 400,000 years to go before it's going to end because of that multiplication by 360. I was going to point out, it's almost like disinformation was intentionally put out and that's what a lot of people think is correct. That's right. And that's what happens in the Kali Yuga. What happens is that the true information gets hidden or it gets distorted. And then the distorted information is the one that becomes more popular, more widely known. And even when you try to tell them that, no, uh, you see the Yuga cycle can't be of different durations for different cultures. There has to be a single Yuga cycle for the whole world. You can't have one for Greece, one for Persia and one for India. If you tell them that the cycle is much shorter in length of 12,000 years duration, the half cycle is at least of 12,000 years duration, a lot of people would probably not buy it because they have been indoctrinated with the uh, wrong information. And what they have accepted are extremely, extremely long periods of time that just really don't make sense. And so for everyone listening, you'll remember not too long ago, I covered an idea about the Yuga cycles from a man called Sri Yukteswar. Sometimes they call him Giri. I think that means mountain, associates him with mountains. But my point here is one of the main reasons I asked Bibuan is because he does not agree with what Sri Yukteswar put forward. To refresh everyone's memory, that lineage, Yogananda, Yukteswar, Aman Lahiri, all the way back to a very famous yogi called Babaji, 
all those images made it on the cover of Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club album. These are some of the things I've covered. But what is the basic premise of the Yuga cycle vis-a-vis the Hindu texts and traditions? Well, the Yuga cycle basically talks about uh, devolution of consciousness. So we start off with a golden age, which we call the Sati Yoga. And that uh, in the in the golden age, uh, people are high soul, they're pure, they don't engage in any kind of evil or sinful acts. And uh, they live for a very long periods of time. They get everything that they desire simply by uh, thinking about it. So it's a very it's a time of uh, abundance and prosperity and high consciousness. And that is also supposed to be the time when the gods and the sages uh, lived on the earth and interacted with humans. And then after the golden age was over, there has been a steady decline in our consciousness. So people started becoming more greedy, more selfish. There, were, uh, the, there was discord and uh, violence and wars, all of that started. And in tandem with the decline in consciousness, the environment also started becoming less favorable for us. So there was a increase in natural catastrophes, more diseases and things like that. And I'll come to this later because uh, what scientists have found uh, now is that there's actually been a decline in our cranial volume over the last 12,000 years. And we've also shrunk in size by nearly 10% since the end of the last ice age. So all of this stuff that comes to us through the traditions about the declining consciousness, declining our physical uh, uh, size and energy, uh, all of that is actually backed up by a lot of scientific data. And now we are in the Kali Yoga, which is supposed to be the uh, final end of the uh, descending cycle when uh, uh, dharma or uh, the, 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 pre- uh, the main criteria for uh, determining uh, this cycle is a term called dharma. Dharma means righteousness and uh, is reflected in our internal virtues. The virtues is uh, truthfulness, honesty, justice, liberty and all of that. And in the Kali Yuga, at the beginning of the Kali Yuga, dharma is supposed to be, dharma has already declined by 75%. So it's only one fourth of dharma that remains at the beginning of the Kali Yuga. And once we traverse the whole of the Kali Yuga, even that dharma is totally dissipated. So at the fag end of the Kali Yuga, you're basically left with no virtues at all. I mean, no human values left to salvage. And that is the point when this cycle ends and uh, there's a pralaya or cataclysm which happens and everything is renewed once again and the ascending cycle begins after that. All right. So I have asked a lot of people, I've talked about this for years and quite often I bump into someone who says, who cares? Why does it matter? And I want to take just a second to address this. First of all, we're talking about planetary transformation, like a big, big change. Secondarily, uh, and I wanted to ask you this, Typically, when you're in a descending cycle, in each change, is there mass death associated with the change? Yes, there is. And that's one of the reasons why you talked about Sri Yukteswar's model. And one of the reasons, there were a couple of reasons why I did not agree with his model. I loved his concept of the ascending and descending cycles because he was the first person I know who clearly presented this whole concept of a descending cycle of 12,000 years and an ascending cycle of 12,000 years uh, so that it adds up to a complete yuga cycle of uh, 24,000 years, which is uh, very closely correlated with the Earth's uh, precession cycle of uh, 25,800 years. So it made astronomical sense. It made intuitive sense. And we know that in nature, all the cycles uh, uh, are, uh, we have this ascending and descending concept in all the natural cycles of time. For instance, in a cycle of day and night, 
the light gradually increases and then gradually decreases. Uh, even in the cycle of seasons, the intensity of sunlight increases from uh, winter to summer and then uh, there's a gradual decrease. So you don't have any abrupt transitions in nature in the natural cycles of time. You don't go directly from midnight to noon. So similarly, even in the cycle of the ages, which is a much bigger cycle, you must have this gradual transition from the darkness of the Kali Yuga to the enlightened conscious consciousness of the golden age. You can't have an abrupt transition directly from uh, Kali Yuga to Sati Yuga, which, which is what was mentioned in some of the ancient texts. And Ikteshwar uh, kind of removed those distortions and it represented a cycle that made a lot of sense. But I did not agree with him on two uh, counts. First of all, in the, in the model that he had, he suggested that the Kali Yuga is already over uh, by 1699 uh, AD. Uh, by 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 the uh, so by 1780 we are already in uh, the transitional period and going into the Kapari Yuga and that didn't make sense because you could just look out of the window and see that we are still very much in the Kali Yuga and over the last 150 years since Teshwar wrote that book I mean consciousness has uh, devolved radically and we are right now we are at a stage where practically everything any despicable act uh, is allowed is carried out to for the sake of uh, acquiring wealth and uh, power and uh, a pleasure. So the devolution of consciousness is still happening. And so I did not agree with him that the Kali Yuga is over. It's, we're pretty much in the Kali Yuga. And that was one factor. And the other one is that our texts tell us, and it's not only our texts, if you look at the concept of the uh, Yuga cycle or the world ages in uh, which is present in Mesoamerica, among the Maya, among the Hopi, among the Persians, you find that at the end of each of these Yugas, there's a cataclysmic destruction of civilization. The old civilization is wiped away and is replaced by a new civilization. And the timeline that I came up with showed that each of the last four transitions between the yugas was uh, cataclysmic. There was a cleansing, and there was a new wave of civilizations that came up from the ashes of the previous one. Some amount of knowledge and skills were carried forward by the survivors, but a lot of uh, knowledge and skills and technologies were lost forever. Bibble, I just want to take a quick minute to refresh everyone's minds uh, in my part of the world. The idea is that time is cyclical. And in the best part or the happiest part, there's a golden age. And that is the Satya Yuga. And you could think of the word Yuga in, in the way that we think in the West as maybe a cycle or a portion of a cycle. So each time you drop down, the next one would be the Treta Yuga, what happens is our spirituality and our consciousness drop each time. Within the definition of the yuga cycles, it's quite scientific how much we lose as we drop, as well as the duration of each portion of the cycle. After we drop down into the civil or silver, uh, which I just told you was the treta, we drop down to the dwarpa. And after that, we drop down into the Kali. And the way we think in the West, that would be a dark age. And that's really what this whole conversation is about. We are in the dark age. Have we left it already? I've covered people who said we have. I've covered Yukteswar's idea that it happened not too long ago. And Bibu's idea is that it's not quite here yet, but it's very close. Is there anything you would add to that description so people have a clear idea, Bibu? No, that was pretty nice. That covered the essence of the whole cycle. Yeah, I'm trying to keep it really simple because the truth is, is it's quite scientific and it is not abstract in any way. 
The problem is, is we don't know for sure where the markers are. So in the West, where I went to school, I was pretty much taught that time is linear. What we are talking about is the exact opposite, that time is cyclical. So in your view, when did we move to a linear model in human history of evolution away from cyclical ideas? You know, that happened quite recently uh, during the era of the colonial uh, conquest, because still that point of time, most civilizations believe that humanity has devolved from a golden age and we are living in the times of the Iron Age, which is the lowest point of the cycle. But during the colonial period, uh, some of the thinkers like Darwin and others, they postulated that since the colonialists were uh, subduing native cultures everywhere, they were standing at the pinnacle of civilization and all human effort over the over millions of years was uh, leading up to that point. So humans gradually perfected themselves in their uh, skills. They perfected their uh, thinking abilities. And all of that was leading up to the period of colonial conquest. They did not care about the fact that the colonialists were actually robbing and looting and fighting and destroying native cultures. That did not matter to them at all. So that's, they just assumed that the colonialists were standing at the pinnacle of civilization and everything was gradually improving over time leading up to that point. It was just an assumption and it was not based on any kind of historical analysis or any kind of scientific data. But as it so happened that the colonialists, they wrote the history books and soon you had this whole model of linear evolution without any kind of scientific data backing it up. And, you know, you can make a truth into a, you can make a lie into a truth just by continuous repetition. Keep on repeating it and people start believing that this is what actually happened and nobody really bothers to go back and actually find out what really happened. But we have people now who are trying to do that over the last uh, few decades. A lot of uh, researchers, mostly independent researchers, are trying to are trying to prove that there were high civilizations in the past. And when you look at the historical data and the archaeological data, there seems to be a clear devolution in our technological abilities. But technology is only a small part of the story. What is much more important is the devolution in unconsciousness. We have we've gone from very high-souled, godly beings to very narrow, mean-spirited uh, beings. So even if you throw in a lot of technology, our lives does not uh, improve to a significant extent because our uh, happiness is dependent to a large extent on the kind of interactions we have with uh, people around us, not so much on technology. Yeah, you're speaking my language now. Uh, the fall in spirituality and consciousness is a big, big deal. And I would add, based on what you just said, to me, it feels like the introduction of linear time is intentional disinformation meant to basically rob power from the general population of the world by withholding important information. And having said that, are there other cultures that have a well-formulated cyclic time model? I mean, I know a lot of people listening are going to immediately think of the Mayas, but how many old cultures are you aware of that have a Yuga-type cycle, and do they mix and match or overlap in any way? Well, according to a book written by a couple of German scientists, there are, there are around 30 ancient cultures which believed in the concept of a cycle of world ages. But I have studied around five of them in more detail while writing this book. One of them are the, are the Aztecs and the Maya. They have a concept of four previous suns, each of which was destroyed in a cataclysmic activity. Uh, the Hopi actually have a very detailed account of the four previous worlds. 
and their account uh, really resonates with me because it's very similar to the Hindu account of the yugas because uh, in each of those uh, four uh, previous worlds, people start off uh, uh, on a fresh note and there's a lot of harmony and peace and good interactions between the people, but slowly there's this devolution of consciousness and there's war and violence and then it gets reset. The civilization essentially gets wiped out, gets reset and a new wave of civilization comes up, which they call the second world or the third world and so on. And according to them, we are now in the fourth world and we are very close to the end of the fourth world. Uh, over the last 50 odd years, a lot of OP elders have been telling uh, you know, a lot of people that we are very, uh, very close to the end of the fourth world because their prophecies indicate that many of the things that ancients had uh, said would happen in this particular era have already happened. So the prophecies are all over and they're basically waiting for the fulfillment of their final prophecy, which is the appearance of the blue star Kachina. And once that prophecy gets fulfilled, this particular age is going to get over. So yes, the Hopi have a very detailed prophecy and many other Native American tribes like the Sioux and others also uh, subscribe to a similar set of beliefs. And then we already know about the Greek cycle of uh, world ages, the Golden Age, Silver Age, uh, the Bronze Age and the Iron Age. That's pretty well known. The Persians had a world cycle of 12,000 years, which they divided into four ages of 3,000 years each, uh, which is the formulation that I have proposed in the book as well. And then the Egyptians. That Now, the Egyptians did not specifically talk about the world ages in their hieroglyphic texts uh, or inscriptions. But when Solon, uh, the Greek lawgiver, had gone to Egypt in uh, at around 600 BCE, he met a priest at the temple of Sais, and that priest told him about uh, the Yuga cycle. He said that whenever uh, civilization progresses for some period of time and people become uh, literate and educated, that's when the stream from heaven comes down like a pestilence and everybody, most people get killed and you have to start again from scratch just like children. And he said that this happens over and over again and the primary agencies for these cleansing activities are water and fire although some other agencies might be involved uh, from time to time. So it was a big discourse between Solon and this Egyptian priest, which exactly mirrors the concept of the Yuga cycle that we have in India. So it was pretty well known in the ancient world uh, uh, that we are devolving and we are at the last stage, last stages or the final stages of this devolution of consciousness. And my study indicates that uh, it's the Kali Yuga gets over in 2025. So it's just a year and a half down the line that the Kali Yuga gets over and we move into a period of transition. On that point, do you agree with Yukteswar that the change will happen at the spring equinox? Yes, uh, actually, uh, the formulation that I have proposed in that article and in the book is that calendar of the seven sages, which is called the Saptarshi calendar in India, that is what was used for tracking uh, the Yuga cycle. And the Saptarshis move from one lunar house to the other lunar house uh, once every hundred years. And this changeover takes place on the spring equinox date of 21st March. So on 2025, the seven sages will move from, will move into a lunar house, which is called Punar Vasu. So once they move into that lunar house on 21st March, 2025, that's when the Kali Yuga will be over and we'll move into a long period of transition. Although most of the cataclysmic activity I anticipate will be over uh, very quickly by 2040. 
So since you've looked at several other cultures, would you say that the events described in all the different cycles, they do seem to uh, coincide with each other? Uh, very much. I mean, if you read about Hesiod's account of the world ages in his book called Works and Days, you'll see that it uh, exactly mirrors the uh, version of the yuga cycle we have in India. Uh, the, 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 this devolution of consciousness keeps on happening right from the Golden Age till the Iron Age. And Hesiod was very clear that he was living in the Iron Age. And he says that, I wish I had lived in the age that came before this, or I had been born in the age that came after this, and not in the Iron Age, because this is when people become evil and they become disrespectful. They don't honor their parents or their gods. They become very violent and they're willing to fight for everything and so on. So there's a big description of the Iron Age that Hesiod provides in the uh, in his text, which uh, which uh, mirrors the kind of description that we find about the Kali Yuga in the Hindu texts and a lot of this Hindu texts. And in fact, uh, it's funny that uh, when you read some of these uh, descriptions about Kali Yuga, which were written at least 2000 years back, if not more, actually a lot of Indian texts were transmitted through oral traditions. So, uh, and then they were finally put down in writing around, uh, starting around 2000 years back. Uh, so people generally tend to date this text based on when they were written down, whereas the information that is contained there might be much, much older than when it was written down. So when you read some of these descriptions about the Kali Yuga in the ancient Indian texts, it almost seems as if the people writing uh, them are alive today, that they're looking at the, at the state of our society today and they're writing down. But that's not true. These are thousands of years old, which means that whenever the devolution of consciousness happens, uh, men tend to, we tend to uh, behave in a similar pattern. The pattern is quite similar. So what happens, what is happening in this Kali Yuga probably happened in the previous Kali Yuga and it's going to happen again in the next Kali Yuga. The exact events may not be the same, but the pattern of our behavior uh, kind of uh, replicates itself uh, every time the Kali Yuga comes along. Man, it is so interesting talking to you. I want to back up just a hair. Uh, you may not know, Bibu, but I became known by work I did through my telescope. And starting in about 2015, because of things that I had filmed through my telescope, I said the sun is going to be a really, really big deal in the future that is not too far in front of us. Now, having said that, you referenced, I believe, the Hopis. Uh, some people are familiar with that, the fourth sun. Can you expound on that? Is the idea that literally we get a new sun? Is it an idea that the sun that we have transforms? Can you shed any light on the idea of a new sun? Well, that's that's pretty interesting because uh, it's not the Hopi, it's actually the Aztecs and the Maya who talk about the previous suns. Uh, the Hopi talk about the previous worlds. So when the Aztecs talk about the previous sons, the first son, the second son, and third son, they refer to basically your yuga. They haven't said anything specifically about the sun. Now, in course of my research, I was trying to find out what is it that, uh, that triggers this transition, this what uh, from the enlightened consciousness of golden age to the Kali Yuga. What is it that triggers, uh, what is it that causes this devolution of consciousness and this evolution of consciousness in the ascending cycle? There has to be some external energy source which is driving this whole cycle. Now I looked into, uh, I looked into some of the scientific opinion and uh, some scientists are saying that the reason why the human race is degenerating right now 
because we are degenerating right now. It's not commonly known fact because this information is cleverly hidden. Not uh, you, you're rarely going to hear about in mainstream media. Nobody talks about in colleges or schools, so it's not printed in papers. But it's right there in so many academic journals. The people who know about it. Are, are are extremely aware that the human race has been degenerating over the last 12,000 odd years, ever since the end of the Ice Age. Our cranial volumes have shrunk by 10%, which is humongous, because this is the same amount of cranial volume that apparently or supposedly we gained in over 2, millions of, 2 million years of evolution from Homo erectus to Homo sapiens. So how do you lose 10% of cranial volume that you gained over 2 million years, just 10,000 years? How do you explain that? And they don't have any answer, which is why they don't really talk about it openly. But the same is true about our physical size. You have shrunk in size by more than 10% in the last 10,000 years. And how do you explain that? Because as per the uh, Darwinian theory of gradual evolution by natural selection, we should have been getting smarter. Our cranial volume should have been increasing even more. We should have, becoming, we should have become more big and strong and healthy. But that's not happening. And the population geneticists, they're saying that the reason why the human uh, race is uh, degenerating is because of harmful genetic mutations that we are acquiring. We have been acquiring a lot of harmful genetic uh, mutations and we are transferring that to our children. And over, uh, over generations, all of that is accumulating and it is driving this downward uh, the shrinkage of our, our brain size and our physical size. But even the even the degradation of our genetics has to have an external source. So I went looking for that source and Yuxri Vitesha said something very interesting. He said that it is uh, the yoga cycle is governed by Brahma, Brahma, who's who's located at Vishnu Nabi, and our sun revolves around that Vishnu Nabi, and Brahma is located at Vishnu Nabi. So these two terms are important. Now we know that our sun is revolving around the galactic center. So the most likely location of Vishnu Nabi is the galactic center because he says that our sun revolves around the uh, Vishnu Nabi and it is Brahma who is located at Vishnu Nabi who governs our mental virtue and that is what drives the ego cycle. So now if Vishnu Nabi is the galactic center, what is Brahma? I'm sorry to interrupt. Can you spell that? And I believe what you're talking about is a sister sun or a sun that is like locked in just to use the term orbit but can you spell the word please it's vishnu nabi v-i-s-h-u-n-a-b-h-i okay and that's what we're talking about right vishnu nabi means the navel of vishnu nabi means navel so it's the navel of vishnu it's the center point and he said that the sun revolves around the vishnu nabi and it is brahma who's located at the vishnu nabi who regulates the mental virtue during the ego cycle. Now, Vishnu Navi has to be the galactic center because our sun revolves around the galactic center. And by the way, uh, our sun doesn't have a binary companion. Uh, and I'll talk about that later because Yuktesha also spoke about a binary companion. Right. And, I, and I looked into it very closely. And we haven't found a binary companion uh, in spite of three extensive sky surveys. And... Uh, and there's another uh, factor why I think there's we don't have a binary company. I'll come to that later. Okay, that's that's why I brought it up. And just because Rose, I know you're going to have to transcribe that. We're talking about a point in space that he's calling the navel, like the belly button. Yeah. And in Yukteswar's idea, there's a binary companion to our sun. And I'll just put it out there so you're aware, Bibu. I filmed another body that looks like another sun through my telescope. Okay. 
people are familiar with that, but go ahead. So what I figured is Vishnu Nabi must be the galactic center because our sun revolves around the galactic center. In that case, what is Brahma? There's only one energetic source which is located at near the galactic center which can qualify as Brahma and that's the central black hole. And we know that the central black hole is a highly energetic body. It emits a lot of emissions, a lot of radioactive emissions. Right now it is not so active, but our uh, uh, our galaxy actually goes through these cycles. At some point in this cycle, the black hole becomes extremely active. That's when uh, the nucleus of the galaxy becomes so luminous that it outshines the rest of the galaxy by a factor of four times. It becomes so luminous. And then it's, then it's called an active galactic nucleus or an AGN. So every galaxy, not every galaxy, a lot of galaxies have these AGN cycles. So the black hole becomes luminous. And then it shuts down and then it's uh, the nucleus suddenly and the nucleus then gradually becomes less and less bright and our our uh, nucleus right now is not very bright we we get very little light uh, from the center of the galaxy reaching us now and then at some point in future it's the black hole is again going to get into the active mode is going to act, start accreting matter and again the nucleus is going to become extremely luminous and i also read that the buddhist spoke of a great central sun and this central sun was believed to emanate the divine light or the intellectual light, which is the light of the inner world or the wisdom light. And the Chaldeans also spoke about a hypercosmic sun or intelligible sun. And they said that this sun is located beyond the fixed stars, which means it's located beyond the stars of the zodiac. And it conducts the physical sun, which means it's, uh, it, it's responsible for the revolution of the uh, physical sun. So when I put all of that together, what it seems to me is that it is the central nucleus, the galactic nucleus, which is the central sun that the Buddhists are talking about. And it's the central black hole, which is Brahma that regulates our uh, consciousness. And recently there was a paper which came out and it looked at the variation in the duration of the cycle. And they found that in very large galaxies, uh, the duration of the Aegean cycle is around 200,000 years, whereas in some smaller galaxies, it could be a few decades. So there's a large variation and our Milky Way galaxy is a medium sized galaxy. So it probably lies. Uh, so the duration of this aging cycle probably lies somewhere in the middle. And if the duration of this aging cycle is around 26,000 years, then it's a very good uh, explanation for driving the consciousness changes in course of the Yuga cycle. That was my proposition in the book. And uh, I'll talk about the binary uh, companion as well. Uh, uh, we can bring it up. Okay. This is part of what makes talking about this so difficult because of all these, what I like to call NASA terms. Actively, there are many portions of the NASA type acceptors that are trying to walk away from black holes now. For my money, I like the older Indian descriptions and the words used, but this is what makes it so difficult because NASA is coming to be known as a place that doesn't tell the truth. And it makes what we're talking about all the more difficult. But before we come back to the bullets, I just want to touch on the blue star. So many people have been fascinated with, in my part of the world, it's typically called the blue Kachina a lot of times. What do you suppose that might be? Are we talking about a comet uh, as an example? And one of the reasons I ask is because a weird thing happened with comets in my lifetime. Back in the 90s, when I got going with big telescopes and cameras, 
well, not at the same level that I was later, but all the comets didn't have a lot of color. Somewhere up around the year 2000, almost all the comets that get imaged are green, which was a big change. That did not used to be how the comets looked. And so I'm just wondering, do you have an idea of what the blue star that is predicted might be? Do you think it's a comet? Yes, I think it's a comet. And when I was looking into the past uh, transitional periods of the yugas, between the yugas, what I found is that each of those periods of transition were characterized by a number of comet and meteor impacts. So it seems that comets have a very important role to play in this periodic destruction and renewal of civilization. Uh, the ancients uh, the ancients actually depicted comets in many different ways. They sometimes, uh, Pliny describes a horse comet, which looks like the mane of a horse in motion. If you look at, if you read the uh, Mawangwe silk text, it's a Chinese uh, comet atlas. They describe uh, comets as serpents or dragons or earthworms in, uh, in those terms. Uh, there are uh, many nat Native American cultures which uh, describe comets as a horned serpent or as a panther. So a lot of ancient cultures, they describe comets in the form of animals. And if you think about our gods, a lot of these gods were actually depicted riding animals uh, uh, across the sky. So Zeus rides a horse or a horse-drawn chariot and uh, Marduk, who is the leader of the Babylonian pantheon, he he sits on a, he rides a horned serpent called Mushushu. And then uh, you have uh, this bird deity, you know, this phoenix or the Garuda bird, which was a Vahana of uh, Lord Vishnu in Hinduism, or the phoenix or, or the Benu bird. They appear like birds. And there's a comet described in the Maungde silk text, which is described as a long-tailed pheasant bird. So what I realized uh, over a period of time is that when the ancients were talking about the gods riding uh, through the sky on these animals, they were actually talking about comets. And these comets were the messengers of the gods and they were basically impacting the earth at periodic intervals and cleansing civilization, which is why they, they actually feared many of these uh, entities. They thought that if they're coming, they're coming here to destroy us. So comets have been uh, described uh, uh, by a lot of uh, ancient uh, cultures and I've also found evidence of cometary impacts during the periods of transition and I was pretty uh, certain that it's actually going to be it's actually comets but I was not sure where these comets are coming from are, are they coming randomly from uh, anywhere or is there a specific source uh, for these comets uh, which are causing this cataclysmic activity and then I came across this uh, work of uh, the British astronomers called uh, Klub and Napier, and their collaborators uh, called uh, Steele and uh, Asher and Steele and others. And they're saying that around 20 to 30,000 years ago, a large comet came into our inner solar system and it uh, swung around the sun and it started breaking up in stages and it created this debris stream called the Torrid Meteor Stream. Uh, we cross the Torrid Meteor Stream twice a year, once uh, around the uh, summer solstice and once in late autumn. And at the core of this Torrid Meteor Stream is the Torrid progenitor, uh, the Torrid parent comet, which broke up in stages, still there, still a very sizable comet and is believed to be at least 100 kilometers in diameter. And around it are many large fragments of that parent comet and is still circling, uh, circling through the storied meteor stream, but we don't really hit that uh, uh, comet stream every year, even though we pass through that stream every year, twice a year, we don't actually collide with the center of that, with the core of that storied meteor stream, because 
first of all, our paths have to overlap. And secondly, the stream itself is very wide. So sometimes we pass below the uh, core of the torrid stream, which is called the torrid resonance form. And sometimes we pass above it. And what this astronomers also said that is that uh, every 2,500 to 3,000 years, we pass through the center of the torrid swarm. And that's when we get bombarded for a period of a few centuries with very large projectiles. And I believe that is the explanation for the yoga ending cataclysms that is, is a torrid resonance swarm, which is uh, which seems to be the primary agent of uh, uh, periodic destruction at the end of a yuga because even the timing matches up because my timing was around 2700 years for a yuga with a 300 year period of transition after a yuga and they're saying that we pass through the Taurus center of the tourism every 2500 to 3000 years and then we get bombarded for a period of a few centuries so the numbers really add up and we are due to pass through the center of the Taurus swarm in the years 2032 and 2036 so that those are the two critical years in my opinion when you might really get bombarded heavily uh by a, a few large comets and you're you're saying torrid as in taurus Tor yeah it's t-a-u-r-i-d the torrid yeah. meteor stream Got it's it. called tor it's called torrid because when we pass through the torrid meteor stream the meteors seem to be coming at us from the taurus constellation right. uh, so the point of emanation of the the apparent point of emanation of these meteors is from the Taurus constellation, from a point very close to the Pleiades. So that's why it's called the Taurus. Actually, all these meteor streams are named after the radiant point, that is after the point from where these meteors seem to originate in the sky. So the Orionis seems to radiate from the Orion constellation and so on. And the Perseids, they seem to emanate from the Perseus constellation. So that's how the meteor streams are all named which we get every year for everyone listening, you can go online and look up when the so-called meteor showers are, which is what's being referenced. But in my view, just like the cycles of time being hidden away, the importance of comets has been hidden away. As an example, I feel like Tycho Brahe probably had characterized how far particular comets were and more what they meant to him in his time. And I feel like it's all been scrubbed away. The thing about comets is a lot of them are periodic. One of the most famous is Halley's Comet. So I'm with you. Very few people are aware right before we went into the COVID era, a very small comet in the northern sky where I am showed up right before all that happened. If I'm not mistaken, I think it was called Comet Atlas. And comets have been known through history to be harbingers uh, and messengers of change. And in the Western world, most of the time, it's not good change. That's right. Every culture believes that comets uh, foretell the death of kings. They bring famine and pestilence. There's revolution of kingdoms. There's war and a lot of changes. Most of it are uh, not very favorable for us. Uh, but sometimes uh, there are a few comets which were also credited with a good harvest and health and abundance. But they're fewer in number. Mostly uh, every time a comet, for instance, if you read the Chinese comet at last, they describe a number of comets and every time you hear things like there was a famine or there was a king who died, there was a war and so on. So comets uh, play seem to play a very important role and they seem to be, and here's the thing about comets. If a comet is coming along, let's say from outer, from the outer solar system, uh, after it comes to the orbit of Jupiter, 
Jupiter, what Jupiter does is it either pushes the comet towards the inner solar system or it ejects it out of the solar system altogether. So it's kind of like the doorway. Jupiter decides whether comets are going to come in or not. It's, uh, it's such a big, uh, and, and uh, right now out of the, uh, I think, uh, out, I think around 600 short period comets that we have, which have around 500 of them have their orbits near the, near Jupiter. So they're called Jupiter family comets because around 500 short period comets are regulated by the orbit of Jupiter. And around uh, 20 or 30 more are regulated by the orbit of Neptune. So, so their orbits, uh, so they swing around the sun, they reach the orbit of Neptune and they come back again. Halley's Comet is, uh, uh, is regulated by Neptune, but uh, Hartley and quite a few others are regulated by uh, Jupiter. So Jupiter sends the comets our way and which is very interesting because in, in one of the greek texts uh, it says that uh, zeus or jupiter he says that i'm going to send my fire breathing eagles and destroy your house and when you think about it what are these fire breathing eagles i mean obviously eagles don't breathe fire nor do they come from outer space these are just comets uh, so jupiter is sending comets towards earth to destroy uh, whoever uh, it wants to uh, so the uh, so the uh, texts uh, tell us that uh, Jupiter is the regulating factor for these short period comets, and the ancients knew about this uh, pretty much, but we have forgotten the actual meaning of these terms, which is reflected in the myth Jupiter, you know, being like the king, the Zeus figure. But we're coming up to the top of the first hour, and a couple minutes here, we're going to take a short break. So I'm going to get one more question in. And then we'll take five and we'll prep up to come back and get through the rest of the points. This next question, to me, it's not really arguable that there were higher civilizations. Where you live in India, just go look at some of the things that were built there. It's mind-bending. We can't even figure out. I mean, it's just, it's beyond what we have the ability to even process. So here's the question. In your opinion, what are some of the obvious evidences that there were high civilizations that existed in ancient times. In other words, this is the opposite idea of what we are taught in school in America. We are taught that time is linear. You used to be a monkey. Now you've evolved so much. You're at the apex of all history. You're a modern human being. So what we are taught is the exact opposite of what I'm asking you. What are the evidences that there were civilizations that are higher than we are now? Well, first of all, when you look at the architecture, you can see how the ancient civilizations everywhere, not just in India or Greece or some, everywhere people were capable of handling massive monolithic uh, blocks of stone. I mean, the, if you look at the pyramids or if you look at the uh, Temple of Baalbek in Lebanon or if you look at, um, the, at the Saxe woman in Peru, you basically see these massive blocks of stone weighing 200 tons or 600 tons or even a thousand tons being lifted several feet over the ground and then fitted together in perfect precision with the surrounding stones. And the, and the, and the fitment is so precise that even after thousands of years, they are standing and you can't even uh, put, your, put a nail through those uh, joints. It's almost as if they have been fused together with some kind of, as if the stones were melted and then fused together. They had some kind of technology to fuse those stones without using the kind of mortar that we use today. So who was doing that? How did they have the technology? We just don't know. Nobody has any answers for that. I mean, when you read the legends, we when the Greeks used to believe that the giants called the Cyclopes uh, ha had built those 
uh, walls and those temples. And they, that's why they, one of the terms used to refer to the structure is cyclopean structures, because they actually believed that the giants had built it. And then we, when you go to Mesoamerica, the, uh, the belief there is uh, there's a race of uh, dwarfs. Uh, the Mesoamericans had a big belief in dwarfs and the previous and the Mayan kings attracted these dwarfs because they had a lot of intelligence and they could see into the future. And they, they were important members of the Mayan court. And there are a lot of cultures which show the Mayan kings in the company of these dwarfs. And they believe that the dwarfs used to levitate the stones through the air and built these uh, Mayan monuments. And uh, there's, a, there's a place called Ushmal in very close to Chichen Itza. And there's a pyramid of the magician in Ushmal. The legend is that this was built by a dwarf in a single night. So they kind of attributed the building of these structures to some kind of otherworldly beings that we don't see around us today. And they believe that they had these beings had magical powers to build those structures. But uh, I mean, we don't know what to make of it because we certainly don't have the technology today to build uh, any of these uh, structures. And then you have these massive rock cut uh, structures. In India, you have the Laura temples. It was basically dug out of an entire mountain. And nobody really understands how that entire plan was conceived in the mind of the builders and how it was executed with so much precision. And then you have technologies like rust, rust-free iron. I mean, in India, you have this iron pillar at Delhi, which has not rusted even after 2,000 years. And then you have these drill cores. In Egypt, you see these drill cores. And these drill cores are so precise that you can't replicate those drill cores even with modern-day uh, drills. They were, they were uh, carved with so much precision. And then you have the Baghdad batteries, which was probably used for electroplating and stuff like that. But we have that technology now. And then there are certain technologies we don't even know how they're invented. For instance, let's, let's take astrology. I mean, some people don't believe in astrology, but if you go to a good uh, Vedic astrologer, you'll see that his readings are so precise that it will basically uh, knock your shoes off because they can tell you stuff that is quite stunning. But then how do you develop a discipline like astrology? Because it's based on the energies transmitted by the planets and by the stars at the moment of your birth. How do you know what those energies are and what kind of effect they have on uh, our consciousness or our life path? It, it can't be designed. It, uh, and, and the Vedic Indians, they did, never said that they devised astrology themselves. They said that it was a discipline that was given to us by the sages and we didn't invent it ourselves. Or if you look at yoga, yoga is based on the understanding that there's this stream of energy called prana, cosmic energy, which flows through some invisible uh, channels within the body called nadis. Now, you can't see prana, you don't even see the nadis, but everybody knows that yoga works. There are a number of studies which show the kind of uh, uh, physiological and mental benefits that you get from practicing yoga. So how do you develop a discipline like yoga? And once again, uh, Asians never claimed to have uh, invented yoga. They said that it was given to us by Lord Shiva. So who is this Lord Shiva? So a lot of questions come up. On one hand, we don't know how these technologies were uh, developed or invented. And on the other hand, we don't understand why the Asians gave the credit for many of these uh, technologies or uh, skills uh, to otherworldly beings. Why not take the credit for it then? Uh, you know, yourself, who gives the credit for one's own achievement to others? You, we never do that. I mean, people like to take credit for their own work. And sometimes in the Kali Yuga, we love to take credit for other people's work as well. I mean, why invent a host of other worldly beings and give the credit for your work to them? Unless 
unless the nature of reality in the past was grammatically different from what it is in the present. And there were some kind of interdimensional entities, which we don't see now, with whom our ancestors had interactions because of the Kali Yuga, we don't have those interactions now, but things could change uh, dramatically in the future. All right. I've got to wrap up for hour one here and I'm with you. I think the difference is just simple, spiritual and consciousness. Uh, I think when those things devolve, we end up where we are now. I wanted to ask you, and I've got to wrap up pretty quickly. Do you know the name? There's an Indian temple where there's pillars that make different sounds. I think they call it the audio temple. Do you know the name of that temple? Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's called the Vitala Temple in Hampi. Can you spell Vitala? V-I-T-T-A-L-A. Everyone go look up that temple. It'll blow your mind the cymatics that were built into these things. Just go look it up. And there are a couple others where entire temples were built out of one single stone. I was looking at one the other day where there was a stone chain that was carved. The only problem is the top rung or the top link in the chain is a different kind of stone than the next link below it. These are technologies that we just don't have anymore. Anyhow, we've got a wrap for hour one. Bibu, can you tell folks where they can find you online and where they can find your book before we break? Yeah, you can find my book on Amazon and you can just type Yuga Shift and you'll get to the book. And for my articles on the Yuga Cycle and on many related topics, you can go to my website, which is www.bibudevmishra.com. All right. So that is hour one of episode 561 with Jason Lingren and Bibu Dev Mizra. Uh, we're going to take a short break and we've got a lot more to get through. And of all the things we covered, this is a big deal. It just is. If it is true that populations just plummet, if it is true that planetary transformation occurs each time, then this is a big deal. And all I can tell you is it's been hidden. It is one of the most hidden things that I have run across. Anyhow, Hour One is free to everybody at crow777radio.com. Members know to log in for the full episode. Members have access to all the forums. Members can create forums. They have access to all the comments sections under every episode. And they can download and view the two-hour film called Shoot the Moon anytime they like. And that has the majority of my telescopic work. With that, we're going to prep up for hour two, and I hope to see you logged in as a member for hour two. There it is, man. I'd like to wish everybody a happy, healthy, and higher-minded new era, or maybe I should say new yuga. There it is, man. Cheers.
belief is the enemy of knowing. Come.